are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm so pleased that you could join me today on this time when we get together on a uh, Thursday afternoon for me, speaking to you from the West Coast of the United States. It's Thursday afternoon. I don't know whatever time it is in whatever time zone you are, but I'm glad that we can come together on these Thursdays and talk about the Bible. This is a live question and answer show that I have every Thursday, and or at least as often as I'm able to make it. Sometimes I have people step in for me when I can't make it all the time. And I certainly don't pretend to have the answer to every Bible question. Sometimes my answer is, I don't know, or the Bible doesn't say, but I'll do the best that I can. And if we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. I'm a pastor, uh, a Bible teacher, and if people know me beyond my pastoral work, uh, it might be from the Bible commentary that I have. I have an online Bible commentary that people have been using for more than 25 years, and some people find it helpful. Some pastors, some everyday people just want to know God's Word better. You can find my online commentary at uh, our website, EnduringWord.com. You can also find it at the Blue Letter Bible. Uh, the great folks at Blue Letter Bible have an amazing Bible resource. Also host my verse-by-verse commentary through the entire Bible. In any regard, when we get together here on a Thursday afternoon, we come together to answer questions. And I begin with a lead question. So this lead question comes from something that came in uh, on some previous question and answer programs that we weren't able to get to. We didn't have time to get to in our time. So here's the question from a viewer named Josiah. Josiah asked this question. How many resurrections are there in the Bible? Well, Josiah, I think that's a great question. How many resurrections are there in the Bible? But I got to be honest, I wish your question was a little clearer. And this is why, because essentially I have to answer two questions here, because there's two ways to ask this question. How many people were raised from the dead in the Bible? You could be asking that. How many resurrections are there in the Bible? Or number two, you could be asking how many events or in how many events will all humanity receive their resurrection bodies? So let me deal with the first aspect of the question. Um, How many people were raised from the dead or resurrected in the Bible? Now, apart from Jesus, there are eight specific people reported as raised from the dead and one event where several people were raised without giving a specific number. I can just click through these very quickly. Uh, I suppose we'll put these in the uh, show notes or something like that in the uh, uh, details of this um, uh, broadcast. Uh, you got the widow of Zarephath's son in 1 Kings 17, the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings chapter 4, the man raised out of Elijah's grave in 2 Kings 13, the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7, Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, Lazarus of Bethany in John 11, Tabitha in Acts chapter 9, Eutychus in Acts chapter 20, and then the one that's a little bit different, you have an unspecified number of saints in Jerusalem who were raised at the death of Jesus. That's recorded in Matthew chapter 27. But I need to stress, every one of those eight 
plus occurrences that I mentioned to you were not real resurrections. Because every one of those people who were raised from the dead, resuscitated, if you will, they would die again. They were brought back to life in the same corruptible body that they had before. There is really only one true resurrection described in the Bible, and that's of Jesus, who's called the first fruits of the resurrection. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 20 through 23. In our resurrection, we will be raised like Jesus into a body that will never corrupt, never grow old, never die. So all of those eight occasions that I mentioned to you before, every one of those people died again. They, they were raised in the same body they had before. True resurrection is being raised in a body that will never die. And in that regard, only Jesus has ever been resurrected. Okay, that's the first way to answer the question. Now, let me give you the second way to ask the question. In how many events will all humanity receive their resurrection bodies? You see, if the question is, how many resurrection events are there in the Bible? I would say either two or three, depending on how you count. Mostly, I'd say two. Now, remember the verse in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus promised that all humanity would be resurrected. Friends, all humanity lives beyond this life. Resurrection is not just something for the righteous. It's also a fact for the wicked. Let's take a look at that verse. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus speaking. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his word and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That's quite a verse, isn't it? Jesus telling us that there is such a thing as the resurrection of condemnation. So not only is every person immortal in the sense that their soul, their spirit, their inner person will never die. Every person will receive a resurrection body either one suited for the glories of heaven or one suited for the agonies of hell. Jesus spoke specifically, again, we read it together there, John chapter 5, verse 29, of the resurrection of condemnation. Now, Revelation chapter 20 tells us something of how this happens. Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. But the rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. You see, the first resurrection is the granting of resurrection life in resurrection bodies to all those who are dead in Jesus. This is a resurrection of blessing. It says there in Revelation, blessed and holy is he. It's a resurrection of power. It says, over such the second death has no power. And it's a resurrection of privilege. It says, they shall be priests of God and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, those who do not have part in the first resurrection, they're not blessed. 
they are under the power of the second death and they are without privilege. So I believe that in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus described two resurrections, he spoke of two orders of resurrection. Again, let's take a look at those verses just one more time. Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, I think we could say that the two orders are separated by this thousand-year period described in Revelation chapter 20 because the rest of the dead are not given their resurrection bodies until the thousand years were finished. Now, there are some people who argue that the first resurrection is a singular event, but many people, including myself, see that it should be understood as an order or a class encompassing previously dead believers who are at once with the Lord, the raptured church, those who are already in heaven, and saints from the great tribulation. I like what John Walverd, a excellent commentator on the book of Revelation, said. He said this, quote, The first resurrection is not an event, but an order of resurrection, including all the righteous who are raised from the dead before the millennial kingdom begins. So, under this way of approaching it, we could say that there are two resurrections, one before the thousand-year literal reign of Jesus on this earth, and the other after the thousand-year literal reign of Jesus. The first resurrection is a resurrection unto glory and honor. The second resurrection is a resurrection unto judgment and condemnation. So, again, I hope that's helpful for you, uh, Josiah. I hope that uh, helps answer your question, uh, no matter which way you intended the question to be asked, whether you were referring to how many resurrection events, so to speak, there are in God's biblical plan, or how many times Jesus or some or God raised somebody from the dead in the Bible. Before I get on to your questions in the live chat, I just want to deal with another quick question that came in on a previous Q&A, and th this should be dealt with pretty quickly. It's a question from Janet, and Janet asked this question. She says, I have this question, Pastor Guzik. Why is it that pastors are given honorarium when they visit and minister in churches? Is it scriptural? Now, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, honorarium. An honorarium is just sort of a fancy name for a gift given normally to a visiting speaker or preacher or whatever. It could be a musician, whatever, uh, someone who, um, who serves or uh, preaches or performs music, whatever it might be. It, honorarium is just a name for that gift, usually a gift of money, though it could be other things as well. And what Janet is asking is, why is it that pastors are given an honorarium and when they visit and minister to churches, is it scriptural? And Jan, I would just say, yes, it is a scriptural practice. Some of these verses uh, make it very clear. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says, Let him who is taught the word, obviously the word of God, share in all good things with him who teaches. And, and really, Jan, in, in the context there, the, the sharing is of sharing of monetary or material things. So if you receive something from the good from the word, it's appropriate to share material things with the one who teaches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, Paul said this, If we have sown spiritual things for you, 
Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? In other words, again, making the same kind of point that Galatians 6.6 6 made was that if somebody is ministering unto you spiritually, it's appropriate to give unto them materially. And then I'll just give one other verse to this effect here. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 17, we read, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So again, the same principle, just being presented in a different way. Now, I think that there's something significant to look at here, Janet. I think there's something wrong with a... I'm just going to speak for preachers, okay? I, I don't speak for pastors. I'm really just speaking for myself, okay? I'm not speaking on behalf of musicians, magicians, performers, whatever it would be. I'm just speaking on behalf of preachers. For myself as a preacher, I think it's wrong to require an honorarium wherever I go. Um, I do get asked to speak in different churches or conferences or whatever it be from time to time. And whenever I go, I never require an honorarium. Uh, now, if people want to give one, if churches or organizations or individuals want to give one, I, I think it's fine. Matter of fact, I think it's appropriate. I think it's more than fine. I think it's appropriate. But my decision to go preach at a place or minister at a church or minister at a conference, it's never dependent on, are they going to pay me or not? I try to listen to the Lord and get a feeling of whether or not it would be pleasing to God for me to do this, for me to do that. So it's not dependent on that. As a matter of fact, in my particular situation, and again, I'm speaking just of my situation, something that we have settled with our board here at Enduring Word, is all honorarium that I would get when I speak goes to the ministry of Enduring Word. It goes to our translation work. It goes to the work that we have of getting these Bible resources out on different platforms, uh, absolutely free, the free work we do. Again, it just goes to the ministry. So I don't even personally accept uh, honorarium. It goes to the ministry. And I'm very grateful for what churches generously give to the ministry because I think we do a lot of good with that. So I think it would be wrong for a pastor or for myself as a preacher to require an honorarium, but I do think it's appropriate whenever possible for churches to do just what Paul spoke of in Galatians 6, in 1 Corinthians 9, in 1 Timothy 5, for those who receive spiritually to share materially with those who bring blessing to them. So Janet, I don't know if you're viewing or not, but I hope that's helpful for you. Okay, I'm going to get into the questions that have come in from the live chat. Thank you for the many questions you all are bringing. Very pleased that you could be with us today. I just want to do one more thing before I get into those questions from the live chat. I want to tell you about a book that a friend of mine named Daniel Fusco has just came, just this week, this book has been released, and it's titled, You're Gonna Make It. Uh, it's a wonderful subtitle, Unlocking Resilience When Life is a Mess. I'm sure that a lot of what Daniel learned and went through uh, through the last trying few years, Daniel's a pastor of a wonderful church in Vancouver, Washington, 
And um, I just really want to recommend this book and this author to you. Daniel has a lot of great resources online as well. But uh, I think this is a book that you're going to enjoy and get. And uh, I'm going to read my copy of it here. And uh, I hope that you'll enjoy it as well. You're going to make it by Daniel Fusco. Okay, with that and with a welcome to our TWR360 audience, we're very pleased that you all could join us. And um, we just want to get right into the Q&A right now. Okay, Adonis asks this question. Do Galatians 3.28, Galatians 6.16, and Romans chapter 9, verses 6-8 show that Gentiles are a part of spiritual Israel? Please explain why or why not. Well, Adonis, yes, absolutely. Um, that passage that you quoted, Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, um, it says, uh, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. Well, that whole concept of the Israel of God speaks of a spiritual concept of Israel. Uh, Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 6 through 16, uh, 6 through 8, let me look that up here. Romans 9, starting in verse 6. Uh, but it is not the word of God that has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. Well, Adonis, I think you're precisely right. Those passages and a few others in the New Testament speak of the concept of spiritual Israel. I don't have any problem with the concept. I think it's clear biblically that there is a concept of spiritual Israel. Let me tell you the part where I do have something of a problem is the idea that the concept of spiritual Israel cancels out the concept of literal or genetic or ethnic Israel in God's plan. I have no problem. It's clearly biblical. The idea that the Bible has the concept of spiritual Israel and that Gentiles who believe are part of spiritual Israel. If you are justified by faith, as Abraham was, then you are part of spiritual Israel. You are spiritually connected to your father Abraham, so to speak. Not God the father, but your patriarch Abraham as an example of faith. Fine. The concept of spiritual, it's a wonderful, wonderful idea. But, but, I don't think anybody should make the mistake of saying that spiritual Israel and the fact of that cancels out the concept of literal or ethnic or genetic Israel and that God still has a plan for genetic, ethnic, uh, literal Israel. Absolutely, he does. They still have a plan in his great unfolding plan. They still have a part, I should say. Sorry, I misspoke there. They still have a part in God's wonderful unfolding plan of the ages. Let me read you Romans chapter 11, I think is a wonderful passage describing them. I'm going to begin at verse 25. Paul says this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this ministry, that you should be wise in your own spirit, uh, opinions, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So notice, right there, 
He's making a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And then he goes on to explain, quoting some wonderful uh, passages from the Hebrew Scriptures. Friends, I cannot see any adequate way of understanding what Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote there that would erase the concept of God's ongoing part for ethnic Israel in his plan. Um, God has a plan that Israel will be saved, that is in his unfolding plan of the ages. It's an important part of it. Jesus said to Jerusalem, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Adonis, I would just answer simply, yes, we totally understand and we get the concept of spiritual Israel, and it's a wonderful and encouraging concept in the New Testament. However, it does not eliminate the truth of the concept of uh, the ongoing part that ethnic, genetic, literal Israel has in God's unfolding plan. Hope that's helpful for you there. Um, Mason asks, are all other religions inherently demonic or are they just false? Well, Mason, look, everything that is evil springs from the world, the flesh, or the devil. Everything. That's not hard to understand. That's not hard to, uh, to, uh, to categorize there. Everything evil in this world is inspired by either the world, the flesh, or the devil. And Mason, I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's hard to uh, figure out where the influence comes from. Um, famously, this was John Calvin, wasn't it? Who said, or was it Augustine? Maybe it was Calvin quoting Augustine for all I know. Uh, it's been famously said that the human heart is a factory of idols. And really, that's what a false religion is. It's idolatry in some way or another. So that, that is kind of pointing towards that origin coming from the heart of the person, not from an outside source such as demonic, but there could be demonic influence as well. So Mason, I'm just trying to say, everything that is evil, every false religion, every idolatry, every wicked thing in this world springs from either the world, the flesh, or the devil. And sometimes it's hard to tell which influence is what? And, and I would say often it's usually not just one of those influences. Sometimes it's all three. So we just don't know a specific source, but we can't blind ourselves to the demonic origin or use of many things in false religions. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Mason. Tara asked this question, is sprinkle baptism biblical or not? Tara, I would put it to you this way. Baptizing by sprinkling is, should never be the normative practice of the church. Um, the word baptism simply means to immerse or overwhelm. That's what the word means. The most natural thing in the world is to understand baptism by immersion. I mean, baptism by immersion was practiced by the early church. We just understand this. So, I think that should be the normative practice. Now, Tara, let me say, there's always people out there who say, 
Well, what if somebody comes to the Lord and we're in the desert and there's only a small amount of water and they must be baptized, but there's not enough to dunk them? Then I say, okay, in that situation, go ahead and sprinkle them. But nobody should regard that as the normative practice for the church. It's just the idea that if there's absolutely no option to immerse a person, then you could do something different. I, I think it's so strange how sometimes we latch on to things that can happen as rare exceptions, and we want to act as if that's how things should be done all the time. So, Tara, I would just say simply said, the word baptism, baptizo, in the original languages of the New Testament, the original language of the New Testament. The, the word simply means to immerse, to dip, to overwhelm, to cover over. That's what the word means. It does not mean to sprinkle. It's never meant to sprinkle. And again, I don't want to exclude some rare cases when, you know, someone could only be baptized by sprinkling, but those rare cases should never be used to establish a general practice. So thank you for that, Tara. Uh, Greg asks this question, do you think we can love God with all our heart on this side of eternity? Okay, Greg, that's a very good question. And let me give you a typical, I don't know, theologian or Bible answer to that. I'll say uh, no and yes. Okay, I'll explain, no. Do I think that we can love God with all our heart on this side of eternity? No. Because, Greg, we can't do anything perfectly on this side of eternity. Nothing. Our faith isn't perfect. Our repentance isn't perfect. Our love isn't perfect. Our grace isn't perfect. Our anger isn't perfect. Our whatever. We do nothing perfect on this side of eternity. So, in that sense, the answer is very easy. No. But on the second part, Greg, I would say that... We can love God to the best of our conscious ability. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that that's perfection. But I simply think that when Jesus speaks to us as failable human beings, he's saying, love the Lord your God with all the best of your conscious ability. And what do I mean by conscious ability? Well, look, there are always ways that I may not know um, I'm uh, failing in my responsibility to honor God, to love Him. But if I don't know, I don't know. That's what makes a certain prayer very valuable. The prayer says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way of religion. Search me, God. Know my heart. I think that's a wonderful and appropriate prayer to pray. Okay, before I go on to the next question from Andromeda, I do want to say something very important word here. Today is my mother-in-law's birthday. I don't know for sure if she's watching from Sweden, but she and my father-in-law, Nils and Gunnar Bergström, there in Jörlanda, Sweden, they often watch the Q&A, and I don't know, I'm sure on her birthday, maybe she has better things to do, but just on the off chance that it is, uh, uh, she is watching, Gunnar, I just want to wish you the happiest of birthdays today. 
I'm so pleased that you are enjoying it. It was a pleasure to speak to you earlier today. And I just pray that you have a wonderful end of your birthday day. And I don't mind if anybody in the comments wants to go ahead and join me in wishing my mother-in-law, Gunnel, a wonderful birthday. So, happy birthday, Gunnel. Again, I don't know if you're watching or not, but just in case you are, I hope you receive it as a happy birthday. All right, let me go on to the next question from Andromeda. Andromeda says this. Did Rebecca have suicidal thoughts? Seems like she was experiencing a depression when her twins started fighting in the womb. Well, um, Andromeda, first of all, okay, I don't know if we could say, I'm thinking through the occasion here in the book of Genesis. We're talking about the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca becomes pregnant. There are twins in her womb. She is agitated because, in a sense, the twins are agitated. They're fighting. They're striving with one another. And God explains to them that he's chosen the younger of the twins to be over the older of the twins, which went against the normal way that they did things in those days. Uh, Normally, the firstborn had the honor of the right. And there were places where God upset that order, to be sure. But when he did, he was upsetting a normal order that existed. So, I don't recall anything in the Genesis text that tells us that Rebecca had suicidal thoughts. Clearly, she was troubled, no doubt, maybe somewhat anxious or depressed. I mean, I don't think that's a stretch to say. But uh, Andromeda, I, I think all we have to go on is what the text itself says. And I don't recall anything in the text that points to Rebecca being suicidal in this occasion. So I would have to say no. We want to be careful that we don't speak, or at least we don't speak with confidence in places where the scriptures themselves do not speak. Uh, So that's just simply what I would say, Uh, Andromeda. Let me go to the next question from uh, Nizzle, MC, Rizzle, I'm sorry, it said that, Rizzle, MC. Okay, Rizzle, Uh, here's the question. I grew up in the church, where the emphasis was on sanctification and works-based salvation. Can you explain your views on 1 John chapter 5, verse 13? Okay, here's 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Okay, well, Rizzo, I think what you're getting at with the quotation of that particular verse, again, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I think one thing you're getting at is how we should have an assurance of our salvation. I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Rizzo, I would say this very strongly, very categorically, that God wants his people to have an assurance of their salvation. I don't think it's God's intended uh, order or status for a believer to be constantly tortured about the salvation of their soul. I'm saved today. 
I'm damned tomorrow. Who knows what it's going to be like next week? I don't know. No, 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 no. God wants his people to have a confidence in their salvation, not an arrogance, not a presumption. And again, this is a presumption. Notice what it says there in 1 John chapter 5, where he connects it to continuation. He says, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Listen, if someone continues to believe in the name of the Son of God, they can have full reason for assurance in their Christian life. They can know, as it says there, that they have eternal life based on God's promise, not based on the strength of their belief, not based on the quality of their belief, but again, based on the promise of God that the um, righteous will live by faith. So, I think God wants us to have this condition of assurance. I don't think it glorifies God and it doesn't benefit his people to live in frequent states of agony over the salvation of one's soul. So, A works-based salvation is always dangerous. Always. Look, we need to be very clear with this. It should be universal among the people of God that when somebody asks us or when we just think in our own head, why am I saved? Why am I right with God? Why am I going to heaven? The first instinct should be to point to Jesus. Why am I right with God? Why am I going to heaven? Why am I rescued for this life and eternity? Because of who Jesus is and what he did for me, especially what he did at the cross and in his resurrection. That's simple. Now, it's a little bit dangerous when the instinct is to answer that question. Why am I right with God? Why am I going to heaven? Why uh, am I rescued in this life and eternity? If if the instinct of our life is to point back to me, uh, well, it's because of something I did, because I live a holy life, because I read my Bible every day, uh, because I gave up so many things for God, because me, me, me. No, that's a bad, and I would even say a dangerous instinct. The core of the Christian life, please listen to me, friends. The core of the Christian life is not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, I said the core of the Christian life is that. Part of the Christian life is what we do for God. Absolutely positively, we believe in the idea of holiness. We believe in the idea of sanctification. We believe in the idea of growth and grace and obeying God. Absolutely. But that's not the core core of the Christian life is not what I do for God. It's what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. So, Rizal, I hope that answers the question for you, and uh, God bless you. I hope that you are able to walk in that sense of an assurance of your salvation. Again, not because you are so wonderful, your faith so strong, or your life so holy, but because your trust is in the God who rescues you in Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, next one comes from uh, Andrea or Andrea. Are DNA tests sanctioned by the Lord? I'm thinking about the idea that I'll know more about my future medical issues. Is this like visiting a medium in God's eyes? Andrea, I have myself 
no problem with a DNA test. I don't think it's anything like visiting a medium or a palm reader or witchcraft or anything like that. Now, just like with anything, something good can be misused. So we're certainly not talking about the misuse of something good. We're not talking about the misuse of something uh, that's, that's, um, that's, that is good from God. So uh, we, we need to be aware of that. We're not talking about that. So I would just simply say that, yes, it's fine for you to get a DNA test. Now, I'll have you know, I personally did get myself a DNA test. Uh, I think my children gifted it to me for my birthday or Father's Day or something like that. And I was very pleased to receive it. Thanks, kids, some years ago. And I was curious. I'll tell you one thing that I was curious about. Okay, my last name, my surname is Guzik. And that's a Polish name. Matter of fact, it means button in Polish. And my whole father's side of the family is Polish. And I was curious to see if perhaps there was some Jewish uh, genetics, Jewish background in my DNA, because many of the people with the name Guzik that I looked at in history from Poland, of course, it's a Polish name, so they would be from Poland, have been Jewish. Uh, when we went to Yad Vashem, that great museum and display about the Holocaust in Jerusalem, they have an area where you can look up names of those who perished in the Holocaust. And to see so many people who died in the Holocaust with the name Guzik because they were Jewish. I, anyway, I was curious to see if there was Jewish heritage in my genetics. And the answer was basically no. I mean, there was the smallest, smallest little percentage, but not anything really of any kind of note in my genetics. So um, I don't have any problem on that regard doing a DNA test. Um, I, I think it could be used. The results of it could be used in a weird or superstitious, or strange way, but I, I don't think that the thing itself is something. It's just a finding from medical science. So that's my opinion on that, Andrea. Um, let me go now to a question from Grizzle. Oh, now I see that maybe it wasn't Rizzle. Maybe it was Grizzle. Ask this question. I heard that Jesus's earthly father, Joseph, died early in life. Is there any truth to this? How would one know? Okay, Grizzle, the, the, uh, the bottom line is we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But this is what the Bible does tell us, is that Joseph was alive. And the last place we leave Joseph is when Jesus is about 12 years old, when Joseph and Mary went to one of the feasts of Israel in Jerusalem, and they lost Jesus in the temple. And while they were on their way back to Galilee, they noticed that uh, Jesus was gone. So we have that particular experience with um, uh, Joseph when Jesus is about 12 years old. We hear nothing more about Joseph in the biblical record. Now, most people suppose, and I, I suppose it's a valid thing just to guess. I mean, again, you don't want to put too much weight on it, but um, Joseph died. He died young. Some people believe that Joseph was somewhat older than Mary. That's true. Maybe he died a natural death. Maybe he died from some accident or illness. We don't really know. 
but it seems that at some point fairly early in the life of Jesus, uh, Joseph passed away and the responsibility to provide for Mary and for the family would naturally pass to Jesus, the eldest son. Therefore, he took up the career, the work of a builder, a carpenter. Actually, the word in the New Testament is translated carpenter, talking about Jesus being the carpenter's son. The better uh, translation of that term is builder. Jesus was a builder, as was Joseph. So, um, that's the best we can do. The scriptures really don't tell us. We don't have any reliable historical reference outside of the scriptures. So, all we can say for certain is that sometime after Jesus was 12 years of age, Joseph passes from the scene, and um, by the time Jesus emerges in his ministry at 30 years of age, uh, Joseph is nowhere to be found, and Mary is by herself. Okay, next question comes from... It's cutting out. I don't know what you mm, yeah, Sorry, thanks. Okay, thanks. Um, Race asks this question. Does God give us interests or things we want to pursue just so we can crucify our flesh and stop pursuing what we want in life? Oh, you know, Race, um, I, I'm just going to give you this question as, you know, kind of as it, as it comes to me. Um, so I, I don't know if I have anything really biblical. There, I, I don't know if there's any specific scripture that sheds light on this. But it sounds strange to me to say that God actually gives us something just for the sake of us um, to crucify it. I, I suppose. Race, I'm, I'm just trying to think through this question as you present it to me. You know, you, you could think of it in a very practical situation for someone in ancient Israel. They get a prize steer, a prize bull, or let's say a lamb. Let's change it. A prize lamb. This is like the perfect lamb. And that's the lamb that they should sacrifice to God. Now, would we say that God gave them that lamb? Well, sure, you could say that. Did God want them to sacrifice that lamb? Well, if they came to a situation where they had a required sacrifice, then it would be plain to say that um, the they should give the best that they had. I, I, I do just want to say this. I, I want to avoid race any kind of implication that God is toying with us. Oh yeah, I gave you this just so you would give it up. Um, but at the same time, I can't deny that oftentimes we may be in a place where to the glory of God, we give him a talent, we give him a resource, we give him ability, we give him a gift that we've received and we lay it down before his throne. So the, the only thing I'm anxious to avoid in your particular question, Race, is, again, any implication that God would toy with us, that um, he's not acting as a wise, loving father. So um, apart from that, um, I would say that the principle does stand, that every good and perfect gift, the Bible tells us in the letter of James, Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, okay? And some of those good and perfect gifts 
God wants us to lay down before him. But, but again, I, I want to avoid the idea that if there's any blessing in our life, oh, we shouldn't have that, it should be given to God. That just seems like a strange way to approach. But I, I can't get around the idea. Again, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Yet, um, some of those good and perfect gifts, he wants us to lay down before his throne. Race, I don't know if I've helped you in the question or not, but I've done the best I can. All right, next uh, question comes from uh, another one from Andromeda. Is it true God always waits for us to do something in specific in our life to receive a miracle? Some people say that that I haven't received what I expect because it's God wants me to do something. Okay, Andromeda, I want to stress this. We, we can't think that there's something we do that obligates God to give us a miracle. It doesn't work like that. We don't have this kind of transactional relationship with God where, um, you know, God says, well, if you do A, B, and C, then you'll get the D, the miracle that I promised. It just doesn't work like that of force God to do a miracle for to do a miracle for us as we would hope. So what do we do? What do we do with this then? How, how do we approach this? Well, I, I, that it is possible that God has something that He wants to give to His children, to you, to me, to one of His children. That we fail to receive because we lack faith. That's definitely possible. (laughs) There are things that God wants to give us that we do not receive because you could say we lack faith or we lack obedience, whatever it is. But we don't make the mistake of thinking that we have a transactional relationship with God. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.